Welcome to the Let's Grab a Cup podcast. My name is Adam Sturgeon. I'm a police sergeant in Southern California. And my goal is to affect change within organizations so that we can have the confidence in the work that we do each day and make a positive impact on the community. I believe that change starts from within, and I know that we can do great things. Each of us has a story, a challenge that we have faced in our lives or in our careers or in the relationships that we've built around us. I would love to sit down and hear your story so that other people can learn and grow in their own lives. If you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, please email me at sturgeonwellness at gmail.com. If you have the desire to lead others and affect change within the law enforcement community, then contact me today. I would love to hear your story and sit down and grab a cup with you. So you find me on Instagram at, at let's grab a cup or at AP underscore sturgeon or at sturgeonwellness.com. All right, have a great day. Today's podcast is going to be a recording with uh, Bob Keller. Bob Keller was in the Army back in the 60s, and he went on to uh, join the LAPD. He spent almost 30 years in the LAPD, and he uh, served in several assignments while he's on duty there. And uh, upon retirement, he ended up um, actually joining the city council in the city of uh, Santa Clarita Valley. And as a city council member, he has been the mayor uh, multiple times and has made a huge impact on the city of Santa Clarita. Now, Bob is a, is a special story to me because he served in LAPD with my grandfather. And um, not only that, he actually uh, sat down with me prior to me joining the uh, police department and really just uh, mentored me through the process. And so I appreciate Bob coming on today, and I hope you enjoy this, uh, this episode. Welcome to Let's Grab a Cup podcast, is where we talk about leadership, authenticity, resiliency, and we provide a place to hold space for one another. I'm your host, Adam Sturgeon, so why don't you grab a cup of coffee or tea or whatever suits you at this moment. Let's dive in. All right, welcome to the Let's Grab a Cup podcast. Uh, my name is Adam Sturgeon. Today, I'm sitting with uh, Bob Keller. Bob was a uh, Los Angeles PD uh, police officer for 25 years. That's correct. And before that, he was in the military. He grew up in the San Fernando Valley. And um, I was really interested in having Bob uh, come on the show because Bob actually served in LAPD with my grandfather. That was an honor of mine, I might add. Yes. Uh, I appreciate it. I, I really appreciate you coming on. And um, so really what this podcast is about, and I kind of explained to you before we started, is just the idea of like, um, the first responders uh, being in policing and the challenges we have to overcome, and you you started policing, you know, what was it nineteen? I went through the academy in uh, February nineteen sixty eight. Nineteen sixty eight. Yep. I can imagine how many people were in your academy class. No, oh, we had about sixty five. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, so I, I don't know why I imagine the academy classes being smaller back then. I think ours was pretty similar. Well, and they varied, but uh, ours was about 65, and uh, we lost a few in the, in the training process, probably graduated maybe 50 of okay. us. It's about the, that's about average. I think, like, we usually lose about, like, what, 20%? Yeah, something like that. So what? let's start early on. Like, what, what got you to the point of wanting to be a police officer? Well, if uh, – Best explain that by going back to when I was in the Army. All right. I, uh, I went in the Army in 1965, and uh, I was there for, for two years. 
but it was my intention. I was I was in training uh, at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and I was going to extend. Uh, as you know, Vietnam was certainly going uh, hot and heavy at that time period, and uh, it bothered me that I had spent two years in the service and had not gone to Vietnam. So, in any event, I uh, went to some briefings on a particular mission that was uh, to take place uh, about three or four months uh, before I got out. And then something interesting happened. My mother, now how does she figure in the equation, right? She sends me my weekly letter, and I open up the letter, and there's a news clipping in there along with the letter. And she said in her letter, she said, Bob, I didn't know if you knew this young man, but I see he graduated from the same high school that you graduated from, which was James Monroe High School in, in the Northridge area. And I read the article, and uh, I, I frankly, I, I knew the young man. Uh, he had went to high school. We were in different time periods, but we had certainly talked a, a number of times. And turns out he had joined the LAPD. And he'd okay. been on for a couple of years, and he was killed in Van Nuys on duty. Oh, wow. Shot and killed. And... I sat there and I read that article, and I also knew that it, there were some some guys in my outfit and while I was in the army that were retiring out of the military, and were going to go into law enforcement, primarily in the South. But that triggered me. I knew, of course, law enforcement was quasi-military in nature, right? And I, I ultimately made the decision. I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and get out and I'm going to join the Los Angeles Police Department. As soon as I got out, I made application when I got home, took about 4 months and I was in the police academy. So you didn't know until you read this article that the policing was was that even in, in the realm of things you wanted to do when you got out of the army? I I thought about law enforcement a little bit. I I but must say, I mean that article really made it more compelling to me. Uh, but I was going to do that after I went to Nam. And you, you really wanted to go to Vietnam. You were—that's what you wanted to do. I, I openly tell you, was I apprehensive? Yes. Did I feel that it was my responsibility? Yes. I think a lot of people would relate to that with, uh, like, even going to Iraq or um, Afghanistan as sure. well. Because I had friends who started when I started policing, and they were saying, like, hey, if we go to if we go to Afghanistan, then I'm going to reenlist. And they had these, this feeling of like, I need, I need to be there or I have a sense of responsibility to uh, the country or even to like my unit or whatever it is. So I, I wasn't in the military, so I don't, I mean, but I have that, I get that mindset when people are saying that sense of responsibility. Um, and you're how old? I'm 77 now. How old were you when you, when you were in the army? I was 21, just 21. And uh, I was just prior to um, my 23rd birthday when I went on the LAPD into, oh, wow. into the academy. Yeah, it's young. Yeah. Would you, so this is one, something I was, I'm wondering, even by myself, I probably would say this, but would you hire yourself, knowing how you were 23, would you hire yourself today? Would you say, yeah, I was, I was mentally ready? For, Absolutely. Yeah? Absolutely. Oh, good. I got a lot of maturity while I was in the, in the military. Okay. And uh, honestly, I, I have often had opportunities. I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but uh, 
talking to school children, and depending if the audience is appropriate and so forth, but I have made this comment many, many times. Knowing what I know today, if I had to do it all over again, I would become a Los Angeles police officer. And that's coming from my heart. I never, ever regretted being a police officer. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you have that sense of wanting to serve your community and the country, I think that it makes sense that you still feel that today. Um, what led you to be going to the army? Were you always trying? Did you always want to serve, or were you like when you're when you're younger? Well, it's interesting you mention that. If I can spend just a moment on it, yeah. I knew I was going to be drafted. And frankly, I did not want to be drafted. The difference was two years versus three years. If you if you uh, go in on your own, of course. So wait, two years if you get drafted. Two years if you're drafted. Three years if you if you sign up on your own. Okay. But signing up on my own, I could get into a lot more activities and so forth. And um, in all candor, I I say this, and this was probably a little bit of immaturity on my part, but I I went down to, knowing I was going to be drafted very soon, everybody was, if you didn't have enough education or going to school or whatever. So I went down to the recruiter's office in Van Nuys and talked to a guy, and, and frankly, I felt like I was talking to a used car salesman. Oh, I'm OCS material, this and this and this. And I'm thinking, mister, this is just Bob Keller. (laughs) Any event, I ended up taking every brochure they had on the rack and obviously did not sign up. It wasn't six weeks later, there's my draft notice. Wow. And I'm still, and I'm just, just about to turn 21. And still, I went back down there. It was the unfortunate thing. It was the same sergeant down there to recruiter's office as I had before. So as it turns out, I, I just wasn't comfortable. But you see, here I, when I say lack of maturity, I'm making a decision about going into the United States Army based upon an individual in a recruiting office. Not the, not the smartest thing I ever did. But I went ahead, let the draft pick me up, and uh, it was in June of 65. Uh, and uh, I, I say this, I, very t- first time I was ever in a plane was over at LAX flying to Fort Polk, Louisiana oh. in the midsummer. I remember getting off that plane. I thought, sweet Lord, <laughs> where have we landed <laughs> with the humidity and everything in the summer? Any event, I, uh, no complaints. It was basic training and uh, I, uh, I remember zero week. Remember, I read all those brochures, and uh, one of the brochures about going into the airborne. Well, the only time I'd ever been in a plane is when I flew to, to Fort Polk. At any event, I, I signed up for it. They put put us in a, a basic training that uh, was supposed to be kind of consistent with with the paratroopers. It meant we ran a lot. Well, I was a young man. That was no big deal. This is only one, one week? Like the first week, or is it? Well, the zero week is your first zero week. Yeah, that's all the administrative stuff. And they put us in a hall and said, due to what's going on in Vietnam, uh, we'll let uh, draftees go into the airborne. Okay. And that's how I, I went up And was and it not up. normal? Like, was that not normal for people to go into airborne right away? Let's say there was no nothing going on, like in Vietnam. Oh, there was in '65. There was right, but I'm saying if there wasn't, if there was no, if there was no turmoil going on, probably would have not been available. Yeah, so it was kind of it was just it happened to be available because they were trying to get more people trained up. Well, and and if I may say and share with you, it was very interesting because that 
same circumstance came about again. Uh, when I left my basic training, which was eight weeks in Fort Polk, uh, they sent me to um, Monterey uh, there in Seaside, California, and I made an 81-millimeter mortar man out of me. And about halfway through that training, uh, they put us in a hall, and uh, a, a captain came out from uh, Special Forces and said a few words to us, and he said, due to the circumstances uh, going on in Vietnam, we'll let draftees go into Special Forces. And I thought, wow. I read that brochure, and I thought, holy cow. I, uh, I went up, there were 11 of us signed up. The following week, they took us out of our regular training, and it was nothing but testing. Uh, physical, aptitude, you name it, they did it. I uh, I was very fortunate. There were three of us that passed the training. Wow. For that, getting in. So when I left uh, when I left Fort Ord, I was on my way to Fort Benning, Georgia, and that's where you go through jump school. Uh, I completed that. And it was an interesting thing. At the end of that training, that was four weeks. Um, in Qualifying jumps, you had to jump five times. How far? What does he mean jumps? Like jumps from an airplane, right? I'm sorry, you like jumps from an airplane. You're jumping out of an airplane. Oh, no, you, you jump out of a plane. That's you yeah. Have to How high are you jumping from? Uh, standard height was about 1,300 to 1,350 feet. A combat jump is about 500 feet. But uh, it's yeah, you're always up there when you jump out of that plane. I feel like that's really close to the ground. <laughs> I mean, well, the, the first one's always the, the most interesting because you, you could have heard a pin drop on that plane. But I mean, everybody is just, what have I done? <laughs> but, and keeping in mind, you know, I, I go back to it. Uh, I'd only been up in a plane a couple of times. You know, I'm jumping out of them. So, do you jump out? Is it the shoe comes open right when you jump out? Yeah, so it's a static line. You're hooked up to okay. a cable, and uh, yeah, you don't have to pull a rip cord. If okay. you've got to pull a rip cord, you've got a problem going. All right. Yeah, I've only been I've been skydiving one time. Have you? But that was like eleven thousand feet in the air. So that's why I'm curious. Like when it's that close to the ground, it's like it's right there. Well, like I say, combat jumps are about five hundred feet. As soon that's, as that ju- chute opens, your feet are just about to hit the ground, it, it, and for safety reasons, obviously. Yeah, that's insane. I I, I never my buddy wanted to be a smoke jumper. Um, oh yeah, and, and he's like, ah, never mind. <laughs> Any event, so I uh, obviously I. When we finished our, our jump school, they put us on a big tarmac and they were reading our names. And by the way, there was 900 started the training. About 600 graduated from jump school. Wow. approximate numbers. But I still remember them calling names and uh, everybody just about, I'd say two-thirds, maybe three-quarters of that entire class left there and were en route to Vietnam right then. And the rest went to the 82nd, 101st, and Fort Campbell, and uh, Fort Bragg is where the 82nd Airborne is, and that's also where Special Forces is. They call it Smoke Bomb Hill, and that's a training facility there. So that's where I spent the next six, seven months. So what was the difference on people that got sent? Like, how did they choose who got sent and who didn't to Vietnam at that point? Oh, from, from leaving... From jump leaving school? jump school, yeah. How did they decide? How did you end up not going? Like, there's well, oh, because I I was already slated to go to special forces. Okay, so automatically you weren't going, but the other, whoever wasn't uh, going to special no, forces automatically I knew that that I was okay. But uh, so many of them were sent right directly to Vietnam, uh, and I, I there was only about fifteen of us out of that entire group 
that was heading for Fort Bragg and training division there at, at Fort Bragg for Special Forces. I uh, I couldn't help but kind of get a kick out of a. By the way, the Army to me, like I say, I frankly I enjoyed it. It, it was an exciting time to say the least. Um, we graduated in December from jump school. Cold. <laughs> I can remember they bust us up to Fort Bragg, 82nd Airborne, and those 15 of us that were going to the training division for Special Forces. We get off the buses, and they said, everybody for Smoke Bomb Hill, which is training division for Special Forces, over there, took our duffel bags. We sat on our duffel bags. It's like 1 o'clock in the morning. Everybody else. Everybody else, 82nd Airborne in the front lean and rest, push-up position. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Welcome to Fort Bragg. Any of it, but we're sitting over to the side. <laughs> we weren't in the push-up position. Anyway, they picked us up, and I can remember, <laughs> I was thinking, what in the world? We're in an open deuce and a half truck. They drive us about 20 miles. Fort Bragg's big. And... Uh, we get out. You could have chipped us out with an ice pick. It was so cold. And we really did not have any real weather gear. Um, anyway, having said that, it's now like 2 o'clock in the morning. And a sergeant comes out and apologizes to us. Says, man, we're sorry. Uh, hey, I know it's cold. The only truck we had was an open bed, a deuce and a half. And uh, any event, uh, your bunks are made and the chow hall is open for you. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. I just left jump school. And I'm telling you, your name was Mud. At every corner, and this guy's telling me my bunk is made, and the chow hall is open. <laughs> Any event, uh, interesting times, and, and then I was in training there for quite some time, and ultimately wound up in D Company of the Seven Special Forces, which is based at that time at Fort Bragg. Okay, so when you uh, when they tells you your bunk is made and chow's ready, did that was that accurate? Uh, Did you walk in? Oh, well, like, it was wow. accurate. Yeah, and I figured the next morning they're going to put us against the wall. I mean, I no, <laughs> everything felt like well, a what trick. I've been trick. going through so far in my military. Somebody told me they've made my bunk. That's funny. Uh, like I say, interesting times. It's it's cool watching you tell the story because you like it's like I see you back there. Yeah, you're imagining yourself back there. It's really cool seeing that. Yeah, good memories. Um, so then you end up, so you, do you stay at Fort Bragg until you're out? Like, is that, did you stay there or I, did you move around? I, I did. And, um, and you know, if I, if I mean, sure, I, I know we got other things to talk about, oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. but at that about? time there was the Barry Sadler, the song came out fighting soldiers from the sky, special forces. John Wayne made the movie, uh, the green berets. And, um, there were other things that also a, a book was made. It came out. It was very popular by Harold Robbins having to do with special forces. So there was a lot of notoriety about it. And I, I found it, I found it interesting. Uh, it was a, a unique outfit. I mean, they t the training was ongoing. It never quit. I was in mountain climbing school. Uh, I had my choice. I could go to Rangers or I could go to underwater operations school. And I, I was an okay swimmer. I was never a great swimmer, but I thought, that has got to be interesting. And I can remember signing up for underwater operations school. Really? A six-week school, two weeks at Fort Bragg, and a, and a month down in Key West, Florida. Oh, that's cool. And can I tell you what an experience. Long surface swims, underwater swims, of course, um, it, it was just a phenomenal experience. 
and all of the preparatory things, going down in diving bells and, and so forth. But anyway, yeah, I learned to be a, a diver while I was in Special Forces and even had the, uh, the opportunity to lock in and out of submarines. I, when I got back to Fort Bragg, I was back about two or three weeks, and they called me out. And they said, hey, Keller, you're going back to Key West, Florida. You're going to help with being an instructor for the underwater operations school, which I was extremely flattered Wow, and, and this is you're a twenty twenty two. I am right back. I'm, yeah, I'm right back to Key West, Florida. What's that? How old were you at this time? Now well, I was twenty two. Twenty two, and now you're instructing it. Yeah, and another thing with being in special forces at that time, whenever a rank, whenever you had the time in service, absent exigent circumstances, you got it. I I was a full sergeant at thirteen months in the army. Wow. 13 months, and I was a full sergeant. Um, I, but, you know, you had to keep your nose clean. That was one of the things they told us from day one. Welcome to Smoke Bomb Hill and Special Forces Training Group and so on and so forth. Now, here's the deal, guys. There is no second chances. You mess up one time, and you're out of here. You're just, there'll be somebody else in your bunk because you won't be there anymore. And... I had that figured out. You know what I did? I did like I was told. I wasn't in charge of that place. <laughs> and I got through just fine. And the truth of the matter is, if, please forgive me. I know I'm boasting a little bit. I had a good attitude. I really did. I was there. I felt fortunate. And I tried to do the best job I could. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think anyone in any circumstance, that's the best. If you're starting something new is going with your, you know, like keep your nose clean, go in there with your head Absolutely. down and like just listen, you know. Learn as much as you can, you know, and I, I think that's that's good attitude to have. Um, but yeah, I mean, you were successful at it, so it worked out. I can't believe like today. I'm sure people going into the army or any military today would be like for 13 months as a full sergeant. That's that's crazy. Yeah. Um. So then it sounds like all this training you had really kind of probably set you up really well for the police department. Can I tell you, it was an asset. I. I convinced that when I took my oral interview to become a Los Angeles police officer that, uh, well, ironically, at the time that I went into the police academy, uh, 90% of the class were past military. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, it was only about 10% that had not been. And I I still remember getting in the academy, and of course, they're they're doing, you know, yelling at us and this and this, and (laughs) I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, Oh, I've never experienced this before. <laughs> yeah, right. So anyway, but I took the same attitude that I had when I was in the service. I honestly, I, I tried to do my best in the police academy, and obviously I, I, I made it through. And, and uh, my first uh, area of assignment was North Hollywood. Okay. And, and ironically, my first nine years <laughs> was I lived in North Hollywood. Oh, you did? My folks did. I'm 53. We moved to Panorama City, obviously all, both in the Santa, San Fernando Valley, but the house we lived in was uh, as a little boy was over built in the eighteen hundreds, and uh, it, it was great. I've got to throw this in, okay? I got the biggest kick out of this. So I go to North Hollywood. I've been there for a year or so. I'm working in El Car, and El Car's a, a, a one police officer in the car, and I get a um, a lost child call. And it's off of Burbank and Vineland. I still remember it was at a gas station. I get over there, and there's the proverbial little Johnny standing over there. And the guy tells me, yeah, I don't know where this this kid just was walking around here, and we decided we should call. 
I said, well, you've done the right thing. So I go over, and little Johnny's probably eight, nine years old. Well, how are you doing? I'm, I'm fine. Well, what are you doing here? Well, I, I, I don't know. And I said, well, do you know where you live? He says, yes. And I said, well, where do you live? He says, 5642 Clump. I said, 5642 Clump. Is that right? Yep. That's where I was when I was a little boy. Same address. What? They had torn down the house. It was a fourplex now. But I got the biggest kick out of it. I, I think I know where it is. <laughs> wow. What a coincidence. Yeah, the circle right there. I got a kick out of that. That's crazy. Yep. And he got him home safely. Of course. So uh, you said the first assignment was in, in West Hollywood. Is it West Hollywood? So you said uh, North Hollywood. North Hollywood. Yep. Um, and you were there for how many years? I was in North Hollywood about four years. And you lived in North Hollywood? No, no. At or that time, I was lived? living over in the North Ridge area. Okay. But I was single. Yeah, and all was good. <laughs> so you're, uh, so you're there for four years in North Hollywood. How was the area at the time? Like, when, was it a busy that the busy area? Was it average? How was it working at? Honestly, it, it, it was busy. I, um, I know it, the San Fernando Valley at that time, Foothill was probably the busiest division at that time. Uh, North Hollywood was probably second. As you go west in the San Fernando Valley, it was quieter, and it wasn't as populated then as, as it is today. Yeah. I can remember talking to a traffic officer one time, and he said, and he'd been on a few years, but he said, Bob, a few years ago, I was the only traffic officer for the entire Santa F- San Fernando Valley. There was only one traffic car. Wow. So you can see how things have changed Slightly, and, and will slightly. continue to change. Everybody's living on top of each other now. Yeah, well, I know they are. So tell me about uh, your career after that. So North Hollywood, and then what did you what did you end up doing throughout your career? What were your I know you kind of moved around a little bit, um, but I worked different assignments. I, uh, even at North Hollywood, I was able to uh, to work with Special Problems Unit, and I also went and did a tour in Vice. And, and okay. uh, the uh, the opportunity opened to maybe go to Metropolitan Division, and um, I made application and was accepted. So and it was um, probably about 1973, early 73, I found myself in the Metropolitan Division in B Platoon, which was a platoon that pretty much handled the San Fernando Valley and the northern portions of Los Angeles. In any event, I was there for a few months, and uh, they decided there to expand the SWAT unit. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. So I applied for that. And uh, they took it from 40 officers to, to 60 officers. Okay. And I was selected, admitted into uh, to the SWAT program. Like I said, but, I'm sure all your training in the Army helped you out. In all, in all candor, it did. Yeah. I know it did. And uh, I was young, you know, of course, and uh, still in pretty good shape. So, and I was, in, I was in SWAT until I made sergeant. I made sergeant in... Uh, October of 75, and I left SWAT and went to, to Hollywood Division at that time. As a sergeant? As a sergeant. So um, at that time, was the SWAT team a full-time team, just like it is now? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, was it full-time oh, yeah. before you started or when they expanded? No, it was full-time. It was already full-time. Yeah, it was already full-time, but it was in its infancy still. SWAT was only about three years old, uh, thereabouts, uh, when I got into it, and... Uh, you didn't have near the equipment and so forth that they have today. I mean, I look at what they have today, and uh, and I could tell you the easiest way to kind of picture what it was like when I was on it in, in those years 
watch Adam 12. It was Adam, they were shooting Adam 12 when I was working in North Hollywood. They would, I would see them shoot. As a matter of fact, one day my partner and I were working a plane car, but in uniform, we're on Magnolia in North Hollywood. And uh, I, morning, and I look up at, what in the world? And here is a guy out in the middle of the street with his coat off playing Toreador with the cars going by. So obviously we've got a, a 5150, you know what yeah. that is, a mental case out there. And I told my partner, I was, I was a, the passenger officer, I said, just slow this thing down, I'll get him. <laughs> he slows the car down. I've already opened the door. I'm ready to go and get this guy. And I look over, and his lights, camera, and action. They're shooting at him. Oh my 12. gosh! And we damn near. I don't know why they did. Why they didn't stop us? I guess they just figured you know traffic with normal traffic, but we weren't exactly the normal traffic. But we came that close to messing up the shot. That's so, funny. They didn't, have, they didn't have that locked off or anything. Like nowadays, it's like a huge event, and they have a movie shoot or a, a episode of something. It's everything's blocked off. They're well, absolutely notifying everybody of everything. So I'm guessing at that point they were probably just like winging it. Yeah. <laughs> it uh, and keep in mind in those days, uh, you know, there were no bulletproof vest. Uh, That's right. Yeah. The, when even when I was in SWAT, our bulletproof vest was a flak jacket from Vietnam, and they'd be good. Maybe stop a twenty-two. <laughs> that's about it. Wow. And you know, flak vest is for flak for grenade stuff. But that's all we had in the way of additional protection. It, it's just a whole different time period. Uh, if you were a long rifleman, initially you had to have your own rifle. Uh, they didn't. The city didn't didn't have them. They before I left uh, SWAT, they they were issuing rifles to the long riflemen and so forth. But it was uh, but it was interesting. I, I would have been. Uh, you might remember. You're a little young, but uh, May 17th of 1974 was the SLA shootout. Okay. And um, they yeah, estimated 9,000 rounds were fired. Biggest shootout in the history of the country from law enforcement. I would have been in that from the very onset. It was my squad in SWAT. But my partner and I had been assigned to special duty as bodyguards to Mayor Tom Bradley. Really? And so we were on that special detail at that time. But we were also on a day off. So when I saw this thing going down on television, I called our headquarters and they said, roll. So I went over and got my partner anyway. We got down there. But by the time we got down there, uh, the fire was going. In other words, it was, it was, the shootout was over. Right. But, um, you yeah, know, interesting times. Yeah, no kidding. What did, what did like a typical week look like on SWAT at the time? Like if you're full time? Uh, is it training all week? Is it just operations? What are you guys doing? We would work what was called uh, dirty sea detail, plain clothes, or you worked in areas where there was a particular crime increase or trend. So we would literally, we, I can tell you, while I was working Metro and SWAT, I worked every city, every corner of, of the Los Angeles area at different times. And never boring. And we typically would get about 50 to 55 call-ups for SWAT to respond as a, as a unit. Right. Uh, in a, a year. Tip- oh, okay. I was going to say in a week. So typically I probably would respond to about 25 of them personally. I mean, there four, four uh, squads in the, in the SWAT unit. Would it just be the whoever's on duty or would they ever do like, hey, you're, whoever's on duty plus we're calling in people? Who and are there were times when we were on call. And yeah. Yes, both. 
But when we're on duty, we're always we're in SWAT. Yeah. Period. Right. And uh, we'll respond. And um, a lot of training. Um, one of the things that they really uh, required of us stayed in physical shape. So uh, quite often, uh, our last hour, uh, we'd be working uh, pumping iron at the police academy or running or whatever. But uh, we had to stay. And it was appropriate. You have to. You've got to be in good shape to do that. Yeah, that makes sense. I think there's, it's pretty similar. I know our SWAT team is not a full-time team, but uh, I think LA's obviously still is, and Sheriff's has their full-time team. Yep. Um, so how many years were you on the SWAT team? How many what? How many years were you on the SWAT team? Uh, just under four. Okay. When I made sergeant. And how old were you when you made sergeant? Uh, would have been uh, 31. All right. That's, that's pretty young. 31, yeah. Made it in seven years. I was on the LAPD for seven years when I made sergeant. And uh, did you retire as a sergeant, or did you? I did. I uh, I, mean, I went to Hollywood, as I indicated. I worked as a patrol sergeant, and uh, I also became the captain's adjutant for a period of months. What is that? Uh, well, you work in the office and help with administrative stuff and okay. responding to citizens and things of that kind. Um, it that was an interesting assignment. I mean, it wasn't working the street, but it was still interesting to kind of get the, the back room operation of police work. Um, but I also had an opportunity uh, to go to internal affairs. And, you know, unfortunately, internal affairs, I don't have any regrets having gone to internal affairs. But it was, it's a time when here you are investigating complaints against police officers. Right. And and unfortunately, sometimes they were true. But the vast majority of the time, I can honestly say that the, the investigations, and I was there for about two and a half years, uh, in most of the time, by a huge majority, 80% of the time, the officers were innocent. There were complaints against them by citizens that were trying to get even or a variety of circumstances. Right. And uh, I took great, great pride in finding that the officer was not guilty of anything, that there were false allegations. And, and sometimes, absolutely, I confronted complainants saying, you've lied, haven't you? You're lying about this, you know it, and we know it. And um, but then, unfortunately, there are a few occasions when there were less than great circumstances. Having said that, what I was able to do after I completed that time on, and this is one of the highlights of my police career, I went to the police academy as an instructor, and I, I ended up taking over the reserve training unit. These are the reserve officers, volunteer police officers that go into the Los Angeles Police Department as citizens. Sometimes they're retired, sometimes they're young, sometimes they're, they're wanting to find out, is police work something I want to get out of what I'm doing now and go into police work? Right. A variety of reasons. But they go through the same background checks and so on and so forth that a regular does. And ultimately, they satisfy all of the requirements of peace officer standards of training uh, that, that a regular does. So I took that job over, and I will tell you, I never took another promotional exam. I enjoyed that assignment at the police academy and training young police officers, if you will, and working with them. And I did that to the day I retired and uh, which is to say it was about another nine years that I oh, spent wow. doing that. I love that job. I think it's good when you find something that you really enjoy, like really enjoy doing. I mean, I, you're just all, I feel like a lot of times people are always looking for the next thing. 
within a within whatever organization or department. It's always like, what's the next thing? Where can I go next? Versus really enjoying that time where they are. And even if you have fun doing what you're doing, it's always like, okay, well, what's next? But if you're satisfied and you're and you actually enjoy and you see the the impact you're having on these people who are wanting to be police officers or wanting just to help out on the on their time off and do reserve stuff, I think that's really cool. That and then I'm obviously you continue helping others as you after even after you retired. But I think that's good that you uh, had that mindset and didn't feel the need to just move on. I uh, I had always planned to go 25 years. I, even from the time I went into the police academy, I can remember talking to some other recruits saying, I'm going to be here for 25 years, God willing. And, in fact, that's exactly what it was. But when I saw, you know, as I was getting close to my 25-year mark, what am I going to do next? And the one thing I knew I was not going to do, I have been a Los Angeles police officer, and I'm proud of it. But that's enough police work. Yeah. I'm not going to go into being a private detective or insurance investigation or something of that kind. And I made the decision to get my real estate license. And I got it uh, two years before I actually retired. And uh, I hung it with a little company out here not far from where we are right now and and um, didn't do much, you know, because you know, I'm still full-time Los Angeles police officer. But when I did retire, I was kind of set, and I went moved right into doing real estate, and I'm still doing real estate today. Yeah, it I, sounds like you're really busy. <laughs> you're busy these days. I, but I'm, I'm, I've been very happy being in real estate. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, I do want to ask one, a couple questions about, like you said, um, well, I, I mean, I brought up in the beginning that you worked with my grandfather. I did. Um, can you tell me about anything? Like, I don't know where, where it was. And Well, he was a shining were. star for me. I remember he wrote me a commendation one time. Oh, yeah? Yeah, where, I, where I, got a, I got a stolen car. I was working by myself, and I got a stolen car and a couple of, couple of suspects. And I can remember uh, Sergeant Sturgeon rolling on that. And, of course, I knew him. For, we all know each other. But uh, he rolled out there, and he said, Keller, that's great work. And I appreciate he wrote me a little attaboy uh, uh, for my package and so forth. But honestly, I will tell you, your grandfather was a very, very fine police officer and supervisor. He was very fair. He was always calm, cool, and collected. I can remember that like yesterday. And uh, I was so honored to find myself living here in Santa Clarita and, and and come across him and see him after all of these years. And as you know, of recent years, I know he's passed away now. But I will tell you, it was a thrill for me every time I would see your, your grandfather. Yeah, well, I appreciate you saying that. I He he always was very calm. I remember that. I, I, we talked about that, especially like recently when we talked about he passed away. But we talked about the fact that he just always had a, even if he was, even if he was upset, he was really calm yeah. and almost eerily calm sometimes. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I wish I had a level head like he did. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure. But yeah, that's I appreciate you saying that. What, what what division were you working at the time, or where were you working? Well, I was, that was when I was in North Hollywood. Okay, so I was early. Yeah, well, I, I met your on. grandfather. Probably he he came over to North Hollywood about a year after I was on. Okay, and uh, he was there as I recall until I left the division. All right. So yeah, I had an opportunity to be around your grandfather quite a bit. That's interesting. Yeah, and uh, I do want to say. Before we move on from policing, I when I started, we we sat down and I came to you for advice on oral interview stuff because yeah. my you know my dad and, and you like you known each other for a while, and I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to help a young twenty year old kid to 
do this. And then obviously it goes into like why you're trying to, you always been in this mentorship capacity, but I appreciate that taking that time. I'll share something with you that being in my capacity, particularly with the reserve training program at the Academy. And, and I sat on oral interviews, of course, as all sergeants do. Uh, I knew what was involved, of course. And if I had somebody who come to my attention and they seemed like they were scored away, and by the way, you fit that mold, uh, along with some many other people that I, I knew. But I'd sit down with them and try to help them because it's not easy going in there. And we're young and probably a little intimidated. Uh, it's not a, a cakewalk, that's for sure. There was a couple that here in Santa Clarita that I knew from back in the 80s. I, I met this couple uh, and... Any of you hadn't seen him for a number of years, and I, I met at some social event here in Santa Clarita, and we got to talking and reminiscing, and the father told me, he said, you know, my son's trying to get into law enforcement, and he just can't get high enough oral. And I said, well, tell me a little bit about him, and he's 25 years old, and really a fine young man. And Well, I knew the father and the mother, and I, I just thought, here's my phone number, have him call me. And he, he called me, and we set up a, a meeting to, at my house uh, within a few days, and he came over. On, I remember it was a Saturday morning, and here he's a nice, strapping young man, probably 6'2", and um, invited him in. We, we visited for a while, and I said, all right, let's talk about the oral. And we, I spent a couple hours with him. And I had him back the next week, spend a couple more hours with him. And and when I would help somebody, and you may recall this, Adam, I, I'd tell you how to comb your hair and a long sleeve shirt and a yada yada, how you shake hands, how you sit in a chair and so on and so forth, because we're going we're gonna to get you through this process. Yeah, every little detail. His next door, you got a 99. Wow. And he ended up going on the L.A. County Sheriff's. So I knew I'd met his, his wife and... Uh, Anyway, he was just a great guy. And he had about seven years on. And I go to City Hall one day. At this time, I'm, I'm on the city council. And it was in 02. And uh, the place is buzzing. There had been a sheriff killed over in the Altadena area, as I recall. Any event, I said, oh, no. Citizen here? Yeah. Uh, it's terrible. Uh, who is it? David March. I said, David March, that's the young man that I, I coached on passing the oral. And uh, an illegal, uh, had been kicked out of this country four or five times, drug dealer, gang member. And um, he pulled him over. He was by himself, David March I'm speaking of. And uh, the guy had a gun. And anyway, he got the drop on him and, and shot him, killed him. I, got, I remember. I remember his name, David March. I remember that name. Where do you where it happened? Do you remember? Where Where did it happen? Do you remember where? Yeah, I, I believe it happened either in Altadena or just outside of Altadena. Okay, but uh, he was such a fine young man. Oh, I was devastated. I was absolutely sick about that. So navigating the losses, like that's a, I, I didn't know that story. I I. Don't know how, I mean, we see our losses of our friends or people that we've impacted throughout the years. And as you, I mean, as you get older and you do all these things, you see more loss in your life um, and people that you've helped out and now 
in policing, you're probably seeing on a daily basis now, just the impact it's having on policing. Um, how does that make you feel or how do you, how does that affect you knowing that you kind of, you survived all that time successfully and people who are going through it or have gone through it that didn't or aren't making it through? Well, it's, it's saddening, of course. I, I experienced it when I was in the Army. A guy that bunked across from me was killed in Nam. A guy that stood next to me in formation was killed in Nam. And I could go through a laundry list of them. And then on the police department, yes, I, I knew a number of officers that were either severely hurt or are killed. And uh, pretty much happens if you go 25 years in law enforcement, and I'm sure that you've been to a funeral or two as well, working Long Beach. Yeah. Um, but you still go out and you do the best job you can for the citizens. Is there anything that you've done or you do that to help take care of yourself or your family? Is there something that you, that you would say you would suggest for people who are in the field that you were able to navigate this? I was. Is there anything that you do specifically or did specifically? You know, I, I mean it sincerely. And I, and I used to talk about this when I had the recruits uh, with the reserve training program. Like I say, I thoroughly enjoyed that. But if an instructor was late for some reason or finished a little early, I would always go in and stand in front of the class and said, let's talk police work. And I'd tell them stories. I would... I wanted to make them the best police officers I could make them be, the best in professional police officers, and be safe. I told them stories when I thought something that I made, the decision I made was wrong. And so and I, why did I tell them that? So they don't make the, the right. same mistake. My heart was in the right place, but I didn't make the right decision. And I know every police officer has experienced that. Yeah. You know, hindsight's always twenty twenty, But you, nevertheless, you do your best to try and do what's right for our citizens and maintain safety. So after the police department, you moved on to, you, you moved out here to Santa Clarita right away, or were you already living out here? I moved out here in 1979. All right. And uh, I've been in the same house, so we're in the same canyon area, and uh, I plan on staying there. Uh, it's been a wonderful, wonderful place to live. And so, yeah, I had several years left on the LAPD when I came out here. Oh, okay. So you commuted a little bit to... Down to L.A.? The what? You just did a commute down to L.A.? Oh, 33 miles to that police academy one way. <laughs> I remember well. <laughs> That's funny. Yep. And so your real estate business took off. You, you've been doing that ever since. And um, aside from real estate, you still com- still committed to helping others and, and serving your community. And that included, like, city council, but a bunch of boards that you were on. You were on. So what what made you... What, how, how would you go transition from like, okay, I'm going to be retired and do real estate to, you know what, I'm going to get involved again? Or was it right away? Like, I'm going to get involved right away. It brings a short story, <laughs> okay? I'm out here, obviously still on the police department, and uh, I had horses back in those days. The lady I was married to, we had horses and, and did quite a bit in, in that arena. And my phone rings one day, and it's a uh, fellow that I worked with in the Hollywood. And I can tell you the year was 1986. I can tell you the year. 
Hey, Bob, this is Dennis. Well, Dennis, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Hey, don't you have horses? I said, well, I might have one or two standing around. He said, Bob, you'd be perfect. He said, I need a co-chair to the rodeo for Frontier Days. And Frontier Days, back in that time period, was put on by the Canyon Country Chamber of Commerce. They no longer exist today. But any event, being involved with horses, I said, you just got yourself a co-chair. And I thought, this is going to be a kick. Rodeo. I like this. So so was it a full-on rodeo? Oh, yeah. It was PRCA rodeo. And by the way, where we are right now, this is where it was held, right here. Wow. So the reason I, I tell that little story is that that is what got me introduced to the community. I uh, obviously met people within the, the Canyon Country Chamber. Our former congressman, Buck McKeon, was one of the board members. And, and, and several other very impressive people. I got to meet Buck McKean one time. You do? Well, I had to, yeah, I flew to D.C. to, and then he was like the representative at the time. So I'll be darn. Yeah, that's funny. Good not, not even out here. He, I live like five minutes away from him, but I went to D.C. <laughs> I met him in D.C. So anyway, you're saying. Well, in any event, I, what I did is I met these folks, and I was immediately impressed. And they're all involved in a community. Next thing I know, somebody says, why don't you consider joining our board? And by this time, I've been around a lot of these people enough. I said, you know, I'd be, I would love to. So I became a board member, and uh, which is to say I'm getting meeting more and more people and so on and so forth. <laughs> it's kind of like it reaches out and grabs you. I, right. I, I can remember uh, Carl Goldman, uh, he and his wife own a KHTS. He was a board member, and I can remember him coming to me one time. He said, Bob? We've got a position open on the American Red Cross. Would you consider getting on the board? And I did. My point being is I was enjoying my involvement with the community so much that uh, it just, I was on the cancer board. I'm a veteran memorial committee, which I'm still on that one today. Oh, yeah? And just, but then I get a call. And by this time, I've met a lot of our local political figures from a lady uh, named Joanne Darcy. And she said, Bob, I want to ask you something. I said, what's that? She said, would you consider being my appointment to the planning commission with the city of Santa Cruz?" And I, I said, boy, that's a whole different level of community participation. And I said, I got to sleep on that one, mayor. She was the mayor at the time. And I, um, I slept on it. Called her up the next day and I said, if you want me, you got me. So I was on the planning commission for about three years. Then there was a lady in our town. What a delightful lady. Connie Warden Roberts. And if you're over uh, by Golden Valley in the 14, you'll see there's a sign up, which I participated in, saying this bridge is dedicated to Connie Warden Roberts. Oh, yeah? Oh, she was just a delightful lady. She has since passed on, as has Joanne Darcy. But So Connie calls me in the latter part of 1999. Hey, Bob, a group, of, a group of us come together this afternoon in my office, and uh, we're going to talk about the upcoming city council uh, race. We're trying to find, you know, who, who would be effective in going on the city council. And, I, of course, so I'm, I'm involved in so much by this point in time. And I'm on the planning commission, and I, you bet it's important. Darn right it's important. I know I was honored that she would invite me to join the group. And I get there's about 12 of us. Marley Lawfer, who is now uh, with the foundation at the uh, 
at the hospital. Uh, I remember was there and a number of other people, the editor and the publisher of the signal was there. Anyway, we sat down and we're talking and well, who do we have out there? And next thing I know, the room goes quiet and Connie said, Bob, we invited you cause we want you to run. And I'm thinking, <laughs> so you think you're going in and there. I had to go to this meeting. <laughs> you, you went there thinking you're just part of like this conversation. Exactly. Not even a clue. And, and they're inviting you to be, they want you to run. And, of course, I was very flattered. I'm going to have to sleep on this. <laughs> uh, and I did. And anyway, obviously, I, I did run. And uh, I was successful. So I went on to the city council in 2020. And uh, honestly, it was a tremendous experience. I was there for 20 years. And I, I had the uh, circumstance of the way we're structured here. You, you rotate through the council as to who's going to be the mayor. So ultimately, right. I was the mayor four times. So you and said you said 2020. You started in 2000. 2000. 2000. Yeah. Okay. So 20 years on the city council. And that was enough. I mean, that's a, <laughs> as much time there as you did in the police. <laughs> time department. I go home that's and crazy. mind my own business. <laughs> so you rotate as mayor. You said, like, I, and I was curious about this because I know other cities, they um, elect a mayor, and that's the mayor of the city. But um, here it's a rotation. The way we are structured is a general law city. Okay, you do not elect a mayor. You elect a city council member. There are five city council members, and the city council themselves will determine who's going to be the mayor for the next year. And okay. So it's only for one year, and then it'll be a different council member. So every year it switches. Yep. And uh, do uh, the city council members, is it, do you have to be live in a certain area to get elected on the city council, or is it just to live in Santa Clarita in general? We are at large, and, and that right now is being contested. Uh, I don't know if we're going to remain that way. I, I'm really uh, – I'll be vocal about it. I think it's terribly unfortunate if we create districts. Uh, all you have to do is look at Los Angeles. They have districts. Right. And all of the council members are fighting each other. for. Uh, I want my bigger slice of the pie for my area. Or, or whatever. The way we are structured here in Santa Clarita, we are all pulling the wagon in the same direction for the entire city. I, I live in the Canyon Country community. There are four communities making up Santa Clarita, of course, Valencia, New Hall, and uh, Saugus, and Canyon Country. But my, my interest as a city council member has always been the, the city of right. Santa Clarita, and we have never had an issue. But yet we've got those people that say, oh, no, we, we've got to change it to districts. And really, it's not to the health, in my estimation, is not to the benefit of our overall community and doing what's right for this community. But we'll see what happens. I'm off the council now. It won't be a decision I'm going to make. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I wish that we could stay as a, as a um, general law city and one that where we are at large. It, it worked very, very well. I feel like being on the city council would be like a full-time job. Can I tell you, it, for Los Angeles, it is a full-time job. But for us, it is it's part-time. Most, But all of us, when you make the commitment, then I will raise my hand and take my oath of office. Guess what? It's a priority. That's a priority. So which is to say, I'm in real estate, to be honest with you, and my I can govern my hours. If I had an activity or circumstance that I needed to be at, I'm there as a city council member. 
Right. I I will sacrifice what I'm doing on the, my real estate business. That does not come first. My responsibility to the city comes first. And uh, it never really was a problem. Um, I just made it happen. How many hours a week do you have to spend just like combing through documents to... Oh, <laughs> you know what I'm doing today, uh, now that I've been off the city council for uh, just over a year, I, I'm reading some books that I had <laughs> sitting around because when I was, for 20 years, all I read was city hall stuff. Every uh, It was preparing for the next council meeting, reading my agendas, getting background, doing all of the things that you need to do. To make it, an informed decision, yeah. Oh, it's, it honestly... I, I would say I spent an absolute 30, 35 hours a week having to do with city council activities. And at the times, I, I estimated um, that I've gone to Washington, D.C. about 30 times over that those years. Really? And, you know, there you're, you're gone for five days, and I'm 100% involved as a city council member. Um, but at the same time, it was very interesting and exciting to go to Washington, D.C. and work on things in behalf of our community. So. What were you, what, any specific projects that you're working on, that you were working on when you were going to well, D.C.? The one that really w- that caused me to go to Washington the most was the CMEX matter. That was that mining operation out here that was proposed a number of years ago, and we've been fighting it because of the, of the uh, honestly, the devastation it would have to our community. What were they the, trying to do? I don't know much mine about Mine gravel uh, for purposes of cement. It's uh, 56 million tons. It was estimated that there would be about a thousand trucks on the 14 freeway. And by the way, that the CMEX is only about three miles to the east of where we are right now. Right. Okay. But collectively, going in and out, there'd be about a thousand trucks a day on the 14. And not only because of the traffic, the air quality, the um, the, the issues are just on. Hey, there's nothing wrong with mining for for you know material gravel. But there's a problem when you do it in the hip pocket of your community. Yeah, right next to a bunch of houses. And so we have fought it for years. And I, I will just simply tell you this. They're not mining out there. <laughs> and we've been fighting it. It came to our attention about 1995, 96, that this was proposed. So it, it, that was certainly one of them. Um, I, uh, I had a, an opportunity to go back there on a number of issues. I went back there when David March... I talked about earlier was killed. I, I met with with uh, White House staff, no, not the president staff, but uh, having to do with getting the murderer back of uh, of David March. Before and, he to bring him back from uh, Mexico. Well, he immediately fled to Mexico. Yeah, and we knew where he was in Mexico. We and and I really credit our former district attorney Steve Cooley. He did an outstanding job. He would not forget this, and he. I, I really credit him. I, I, in all candor, I can't tell you that I saw much benefit coming from my, I know, two specific times I went to Washington, D.C. on the matter having to do with the, the murderer of, of David March. Um, but ultimately, we did get him back into the U.S., and he'll be cooling his heels in prison to the day he dies. Wow. Good place for him. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So are you still riding horses today? You still have those you six know, horses? I actually, no, I don't have horses anymore. And, um, you know, I hate to admit this. I'm getting a little older. I, I rode in a, every 4th of July. I would ride a horse in the 4th of July parade. 
Oh, yeah? And, and well, I enjoy it. I, it was great riding down there and waving to all of the, the kids. And with a horse, I could kind of get over close and, and talk to a family and tell them what a beautiful family you've got and so forth. So, trust me, I'm having more fun than they are along the sides. But uh, I would always ride a horse. And, and over the years, I did a lot of riding in my life. What's next for you as far as like the real estate going to continue? Do you feel like you have time that you're actually going to step back from that? And and I was saying, I'm guessing you're enjoying retirement, but I feel like you're not really retired. So what? you know, I don't want to sound. Uh, I, I've made comment before. Uh, when I retire, bury me. I'll be dead. Oh yeah, I have no intention of retiring. I feel like that's a generational thing. That's like my grandfather was the same way. Like he was not. They had to tear him away from his business. Like mm-hmm. did not want to stop working. Well, as you may know, Adam, I've got my own real estate company. I had a partner. It's called Keller Davis. Uh, Mr. Davis passed away about four or five years ago. Oh, wow. Uh, he was a great friend and a great business partner. Uh, I have the company now, and I've, I've got uh, two offices and about 33 agents. So I keep busy with the real estate, and, and plus I do a little real estate on my own. So, um, But it's, it's been a good, another good chapter in my life. Well, it was uh, if looking back on like all the different stories. Uh, if you could go back to one time, like one specific time, would you? Would a would you? But b, what would be that time? Back when I was a police officer. Yeah. Yep. A lot of people find that kind of interesting. They would think that it was when I perhaps on the city council and the mayor. Which, by the way, when I my last night on the council, I made comment to the community. It's been an honor and a privilege, and I mean that sincerely. But as you ask that question, I will tell you, being a police officer was up here for me. That's fantastic. I like that. I like the answer. Yep. So are there any, any advice right now that you can give, um, you know, anyone that's listening as far as, like, preparation for, obviously, you do a 25-year career, but just prepping, prepping for beyond that. So you obviously got a real estate license two years before you were off of uh, the, the department, but... I don't know if something you would say, like, you have prepped people getting into the police department. How do you prepped to get out, you know, on, on the way out? Well, I think, you know, if we're going to be adult, we need to kind of plan ahead. You know, it, uh, planning where you're going to go in life is kind of important. Uh, it, so it's not a happenstance to me. It's something that you, you give thought to. So I would encourage any, and particularly I, I had the opportunity to go to a couple of functions where, you know, we've got, 10th and 11th graders or something uh, in a hall and uh, talking to them about, uh, well, it's time to start planning what you're going to do in life. You know? And uh, I, I think that's a very important class for young people. Yeah, Think ahead. There's a lot of things you can do out there, but it shouldn't happen by accident. It should be something that you've thought out, and uh, chances are you're going to be more successful and you're going to enjoy what you're doing more. I agree. Well, I really appreciate you coming on today. Um, let's, I do want to say, like, so if you're looking for a real estate agent, is it still called Keller Davis? Oh, I'd be honored. Absolutely. It's still called Keller Davis, right? Out it's here? called Keller Davis. Absolutely. Um, is it KellerDavis.com? How can we find you? I can, you can go and do just that, KellerDavis.com in the computer. Uh, I'll give you my phone number, 661-510-0987. All right, and there's 33 agents standing by. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, I appreciate it, sir. Thanks for coming out. Adam, thank you so much. I'm, I'm honored that you asked me, and uh, I, uh, it's, I, I take great pride in being able to sit down with you and visit and knowing that you've been in law enforcement for so many years as well.
Yeah, and, and I, I do. I really appreciate like uh, like you taking your time to do the oral interview stuff with me. And the funny thing is, like, um, I I remember sitting in your office. Like, I remember sitting sitting there across the table from you. I don't remember what you said. I don't. I can't remember the conversation, <laughs> but I remember. And I remember thinking, like, writing stuff down and being, like, I am, I am not prepared for this at all. Like, I just like wait this too. Like, okay, I'm not prepared. But just it was like so overwhelming all the information. But I think that. Well, sunk into the extent you passed. All right. Well, yeah, I passed. I'm, I think it's funny that anyone going into it, there's a lot of information. Sit down with people. Find someone that's going to mentor you. But definitely it's it's if you're going to these tests, like you definitely you have to be prepared. Yep. So, but yeah, again, appreciate it. I'm going to hit this little outro thing, and then uh, we'll be good to go. Very good, sir.